0: Good morning everyone. It's great to see you uh, this morning. Thanks for being here. If you're a visitor, as Chris said at the start, um missed the welcome, you're really, really welcome. We um, hope you enjoy this morning. Um, please stick around for a cup of tea and coffee afterwards. Um, we had a great Sunday last week, um, just baptizing nine people. Beautiful service and just victory in the place. And you can sense that even this morning as we worship God together. Um, uh, I hope you had a nice Easter break and got a little bit of time off and enjoyed the weather um, um, and all of that. Um, we're going to begin a new series this morning. Um, so a little bit of context for that series first, um, we're calling it From Familiar to Fascinated and uh, really focusing on encounters with the risen Jesus. Um, and I'll explain a little bit more um, of that as we go through. Today is a bit of an introduction, as well as trying to focus on probably the first one of the encounters of Jesus after the resurrection, which was with Mary. Um, So I'll get to Mary, but it's probably going to be the last five or ten minutes, if that's okay. Um, So don't worry, once you get to Mary, it's not another preach for another half an hour, okay? Uh, I just want to set the scene for a number of what these encounters we're going to look at over the next wee while. Um, For those of you who maybe aren't aware, this is the season in the Christian calendar, if you like, between Easter and Pentecost. It's known as the Pentecost season, and um, it lasts for 50 days. Um, culminating in Pentecost Sunday, which is this year is the last Sunday in May. So 50 days after Easter is always Pentecost Sunday. And we live through this period in the church's calendar. And we're really excited about that, as Chris has just said, because we're going to be worshiping with lots of other people on Pentecost Sunday. We'll have our own service here. But then we'll go to encouraging everybody to go down to Newcastle on the night of time of worship and prayer with lots of other churches who will be at the festival then a month after that. And we really feel like that will be building momentum for what we sense the Holy Spirit wants to do in this particular season that we're living through as we celebrate Him pouring Himself out. And um, the Lord is doing stuff all around the world at the moment. There are rumors that are surfacing of the Holy Spirit moving in meetings, people lingering in the presence of God. Um, In lots of different parts of the world, it feels like we are in a unique moment, um, I think, in history. And God is moving and uh, we long for that and uh, I guess if it's okay to use the freight or have a holy jealousy for that within our own nation and within our own land to see the Spirit of God move. And so I really do believe that this could be a significant season for us the next number of weeks and months uh, if we use it well. And uh, and one of the ways I think we can prepare for that is being inspired and challenged by some of these encounters that happened after Easter, before Jesus ascended. And so, the season <clears throat> this is the season where Jesus spent forty days after Easter, appearing sporadically to the disciples, um, and then uh, he ascended to heaven. And then ten days after he ascended to heaven, so that makes it fifty. Um, uh, the Holy Spirit fell as we read about in Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts confirms this. Let me just read this so you don't think I'm making it up. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it's on the screen. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Um, It's interesting that after Jesus rose from the dead, which we celebrated last week as Easter Sunday, that he continued to talk about the kingdom of God, isn't it? This is a good little link to our last series, which was called Cultivate, where we looked at one of the main, maybe the main parable about how the kingdom of God works, if you want to use that phrase. And uh, even after Jesus rose from the dead, he's still talking about the kingdom of God, probably because the disciples are going to be the ones that are going to continue to proclaim this kingdom and see it extended on the earth. And so we're in this between place, if you like, between Easter and Pentecost, awakened by the hope of resurrection and anticipating all that could be because Pentecost is coming. And of course, just the gospel in a nutshell here. Of course, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming, which we anticipate 50 days after Easter, could happen because of what happened at Easter. So what we anticipate is going to happen, uh, the, the disciples could anticipate what was going to happen, even though they hadn't really a clue what that was going to look like. All of that could only happen because of Easter. Easter and Pentecost are foundational, formational for who we are and what we believe as a church. Because at Easter, we have just remembered Jesus died on the cross not only as a substitute for our sin, but ultimately to defeat humanity's greatest enemy, which is death and all of sin. And so the the just penalty of sin for the whole world was poured out on Jesus. He bore that in his own body. And in doing that, he drained all of the evil of the world of its power into himself. As we learned last week, the love of God was so strong, displayed in Jesus' perfect, sinless, self-sacrificial act on the cross. The love of God was too strong for death, death and so swallowed death up, and the victory was realized. Jesus' mortality, his humanity in a sense, his flesh was swallowed up by death, <laughs> but death couldn't digest divinity. And so God then swallowed up death in himself. And so as Jesus had declared when he was alive, I am the resurrection and the life. The power of Jesus' life was so strong that, and his sacrifice was so pure that he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 summarizes it really, really well. Uh, It says this: He was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. He was delivered for your sins to death; he died for your death. he, He died for our sins, sorry, and he was raised for your justification. That on the cross, what we just remembered at Easter, Jesus died in your place for your sins, but he was raised. So that you could enter into, open the door into new life, participate with Christ in new creation. This is why we preach the resurrection. This is why this season is important, because the cross is ineffective in a sense without the resurrection. Paul would say this later on in 1 Corinthians our preaching is futile. What we're left with is a nice guy that went around and said lots of really good things and did miracles, but ultimately died. Your preaching is futile. Unless you preach the resurrection, unless you preach Jesus is Lord. This is what the early disciples preached all over the place. They preached Jesus is Lord. You killed him, God raised him from the dead. You put him on the cross, God raised him from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. Everything changes. But why these 50 days? Why did uh, Jesus not just descend straight away? Why did Pentecost not just happen straight away? I've been, I've been thinking about this this week, enjoying the prep for it. Um, a few reasons, I think. First of all, there was a period in between Easter and Pentecost for proof. For proof that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. I actually said that in that verse in Acts. He he appeared to them with many convincing proofs. Um, Jesus was raised to the dead in bodily form in a human form. The, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away. He didn't need help to get out. It wasn't like Jesus rose, up, rose from the dead and thought, oh, "I could do it with a hand here to get this stone out of the road." Right? The stone was rolled away to let us in to see that Jesus had been raised. But not only did he—is there an empty tomb? But there are these appearances, and both of those go together. Otherwise, the skeptics would say that it was just like a—it was like a grave stealing. But there was both the empty tomb and there was the appearances over these 40 days. Paul would go on to say this. It's on the screen. This is the gospel really again in a nutshell as the apostles would have preached it in the early church. In those first uh, 100 years of the church, this is what it was. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, right? So that means it's really important. Here it is. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Twice it says according to the scriptures. What's it talking about? It's talking about all of the Old Testament pointing to this moment. It was all prophesied. It was all coming together. They just didn't see it like it was going to happen. I received to you, I passed on as first important to Christ, died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, look, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So Paul's saying, if, if, if you want proof, go and talk to the 500. Most of them are still alive, go and have a chat with them. Go and talk to them because they saw him with their own eyes. The resurrected Jesus. Amazing. So first, I think we have this period because of the proof. Second, I like to think that Jesus just wanted to meet a few people. There was a few individuals that Jesus thought, before I go back to heaven, I want to just look them in the eye. I just, I just want them to know that I love them. I want them to have a moment. I want to have a moment with them. Peter's the obvious one that maybe we would think of in that. But for all of those encounters, there was a few individuals that Jesus, I think, just wanted to look in the eye. Because that's who Jesus is. And thirdly, I think that they have this period. Because and this has really arrested my heart this week as I've looked at this afresh. I think that there was a period, because the disciples needed a period to process What it actually could mean that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I think we we need a process at times. We we need fresh revelation, fresh fascination with what it actually means to look in the face of the one who rose from the dead. Because we talk lots, and rightly so, about Jesus' life, his ministry. We talk lots about Jesus' death, which we should and which is right. But what does it actually mean to so look in the face of the one who rose from the dead and stands, if you can imagine, with a smile on his face and a clenched fist of victory, and we can look into his face and go, it's actually all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. As St. Julian of Norton Arch said all those years ago, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, because Jesus is making all things new. Think about it like this Jesus' death was awful, obviously, brutal, devastating for the disciples. But there's a sense in which, at least in one way, while it broke their hearts, hear, hear me writing this, maybe this is a silly train of thought, but I've been thinking about this this week. In one way, they could all just go back to their day jobs. In one way, they could just all go back to what they did before. I mean, following Jesus for those three years had been amazing, been wonderful, been awesome. Yes, it had crushed their own hearts and their spirits to watch him die. Yes, they were faced with lots of hopelessness. But you know what? It had cost a lot to follow Jesus. It had cost a lot, like the Jews didn't like them anymore, the Romans didn't like them anymore. At least they could just go back to fishing or doing the stuff that they do every day. It was, it was nice while it lasted kind of thing, but then it's, then it's over. We don't have to change too much. Jesus' death was awful. But here, now that he's alive, what is that going to mean for your life? And this is what we're about to learn in these encounters. Now that Jesus is actually alive, it's going to change everything. Now, you just don't necessarily go back to your day job, although you might, but you will go back and everything will be different. Because something has entered into the world that is going to change everything. Scott McKnight puts it like this, The resurrection is the biggest if in history. And I like that. It's the biggest if in history. If it's true, then everything changes. Everything changes for the whole world. But if you get a grip of it and a revelation of it, everything changes for you as well. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, defeated death, Became the pioneer for a whole new humanity. Became the leader of the new creation that was going to break into the world. That's going to take a whole new level of imagination. That's going to take a whole new worldview to develop. I like, I think it's on the screen here, what Frederick Buchner says. He says, the resurrection means that the last thing is never the final thing. <laughs> it's never the final thing when resurrection comes. And so when Jesus was spending throughout these 40 days time with his disciples... He wasn't coming just to cure their grief at losing him. That was probably part of it. But he was coming to help them process what it was going to mean for their lives from here on in. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. And so we want to understand more fully the kingdom of God. This is what the disciples found out. This is what we're going to see Mary Thomas, the road, the two on the road to Emmaus, the disciples who were locked up in fear, Peter on the shore. Here's the thing. All of these disciples find out because Jesus didn't stay dead, he has this fierce ambition for you not to stay dead either. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, he has a fierce ambition for you not to stay dead For all of humanity not to stay dead. For every part of your being that feels a bit dead to come alive again. When you meet the resurrected Jesus, when you look into the eyes of the resurrected Jesus, you realize in a very personal way that the last thing, the last thing doesn't need to be the final thing. Because... There's one who stands in front of you in a resurrected body, bearing the scars of death so that your scars don't need to define you anymore. But when you see Jesus in his resurrected body, the one who has come out of the grave, the one who has went lower than anybody has ever gone, and he comes out of the grave gloriously resurrected, Burying the wounds of the cross, you realize that because he carries those scars, yours don't have to define you anymore. When you look into his face, you realize the awesome realization that everything can be different. That Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned in your life. (laughs) Every secret shame narrative that goes on in your head that nobody else sees you look into the eyes of the resurrected Jesus and he says we're going to do something about that every every part of you that still feels like loss inside your heart Jesus in his resurrected state looks into your eyes and says we're going to heal that every dream that feels like it's unfulfilled the resurrected Jesus says we're going to restore and heal that Everything is being made new. Now your biggest fear, your greatest doubt, your deepest sense of regret and shame, all of that can be made new. All of that can be healed. This is what these resurrection accounts teach us. It's, it's exhilarating news. It's because if you know Jesus, what we're really praying that you'd be awakened to, if you're not already, is you've got like resurrection power flowing through your veins. It's exhilarating news. It changes the whole world. It changes everything. And when the news began at the very kind of start, even before they'd seen Jesus, but when the angels had broke the news that something could have happened, it just, it set these women's feet who were the first at the tomb dancing. Let, let's see, I love Matthew's detail in this. It says in Matthew's account, chapter 28, it says, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Of have bolded that, ran to tell his disciples. What's it like to run with resurrection in your feet. Like, just for a moment, picture these women. I'm not sure what way they were dressed or what way in that particular context, but I, I tell you what, they weren't that concerned with their appearance in that moment. Here's, here's uh, the, the diff, different uh, gospels of different accounts. So we're maybe not fully sure how many of them was, but in Matthew's account, it seems that there was at least three or four of them. And Luke seems to mention three of them. But imagine, just for a moment, Like, let your imagination go wild here. Think about these women running, like giddy, like laughing to one another, like full of joy and fear. What, what is going on? We've got the best news. He could be alive. He could be risen. And they run with resurrection in their bones. It's starting to dawn on them that something new is happening and something it could be taking place that's going to change them. Their whole beings filled with fascination. And this is what I kind of want and long and we long for this little series to be over the next few weeks. A time when we are moved from what has become familiar to us to fresh fascination with Jesus as we look into the face, as we encounter the risen Jesus. Now think about this for a moment because all of the people that we're going to look at, pretty much all of them... Knew Jesus. They'd become relatively familiar with Jesus, as outstanding and unique as Jesus was. If you, it, they'd, they'd seen the miracles, they'd heard the teaching. They had um, <clears throat> They'd become aware of who who Jesus was, his love for the marginalized. Of course, they'd been fascinated by him, but they'd also been with him, you know, for the guts of three years. And in this moment, all of them are filled with fr- fresh fascination for who Jesus is and, and I guess this is our deepest prayer that we each of us would be moved afresh from what has become familiar about Jesus to the want, of resurrection wonder the fresh fascination with who he is can I pray that before I move on just a minute, why, why don't you just um, allow your heart just to fall silent and why don't you just very quickly and just in a few seconds of silence. Why well, would you take a moment just to ask the Holy Spirit just to open your eyes of your heart again to see Jesus. Jesus, I just thank you that you have said that you are, you are the resurrection. You are the life. Thank you that this is not us just exploring a religion or a doctrine for the sake of it, but we are engaging, opening our hearts up, connecting with a person. And Lord, we pray that in these moments, and over these next few days and weeks, that you would fascinate us again with who you are, Jesus, in your name, amen, amen. All four Gospels, as I said, give slightly different accounts of the resurrection. But on each of the accounts, maybe not so much Mark because his is quite a short account, but in each of them they show us a mixture of what I would say is reverence and intimacy. I love how Eugene Peterson brings this out. It tells us in um, Matthew 28, as we go back to uh, or, sorry, go forward to the next few verses of what I just read a moment ago. It says, So the women hurried from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. In the message it says, Good morning. Um, they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers, go to Galilee and there they will see me. Notice this line, they clasped his feet and worshipped him. Here we see, and this is what I think we're going to see in all of the encounters, is a mixture of reverence and intimacy. A beautiful picture, they're bowing before him in reverence, but they're holding on to him in intimacy. This is what real fascination with Jesus, I think, looks like. I like how Eugene Peterson says this about the mixture. The reverence needs the infusion of intimacy, lest it become a cool and detached ascetic. The intimacy needs to be suffused in reverence, lest it become a gushy emotion. We need both of these things together. And we should feel both of these things as we encounter the risen Jesus. And our prayer is for renewed reverence and rekindled intimacy with Jesus over the next few weeks. Reverence, let's look at both these for a quick moment. Reverence is what we sometimes call the fear of the Lord. In six times in the different accounts, it mentions that the response to seeing Jesus risen from the dead is fear. And at first glance, that's not, a, that's not that kind of unsurprising. Like, imagine you saw an angel, never mind the resurrected Jesus who had died three days earlier. That would, that would, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? That would be like your initial human response would be like, whoa, that's like, that, you know, it's fear. But um, we need to understand the word fear in the biblical tradition. And um, fear of the Lord is fear with the scary element deleted from it, really. It's awe of who God is. The fear does not result in the absence of fear, but rather it transforms that human feeling of fear into fear of the Lord. And so the response to being faced up with Jesus, looking at Jesus personally, encountering the resurrected Jesus, we realize we're not the center of the world. We realize that something more is happening. We realize we are not God. We're shaken out of our own self-centered world into the true reality of what's going on. Because when we look at Jesus, we look at true reality. And as we encounter him, it's like, ah, oh, it's astonishment. it's, 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 It feels like fear in a human way, but quickly that moves to fear of the Lord, which brings me on to not just reverence but intimacy, because very quickly, in almost right throughout the Bible, not just the resurrection accounts, but in almost every encounter of somebody with the Lord throughout the scriptures, while they feel that initial sense of fear, it very quickly comes and the the initial words are do not be afraid, or fear not, and so the reverence becomes infused with intimacy. And in all of these encounters, we we'll see that because something happens in the awe and the astonishment of these moments where somehow, while simultaneously what happens, we are struck with a sense of awe and majesty and that is other to, than us, while at the same time feeling that we've never been more known than we've ever been in that moment. And this is what happens when you meet Jesus. You, you, you don't get that if you just follow some kind of dead religion. When you see Jesus, you're, you're, you're encountering this experience of both reverence and intimacy simultaneously happening at the same time where, where you're known in ways that you have never been known before. Paul would say in his great chapter of love in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we have seen only a reflection as in a the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. You see, to be loved is to be known. And to be known is to be loved. Like we know this in a very, you know, day to day kind of way, don't we? That if we don't feel noticed, we don't feel loved. But when we feel noticed, and more than that, when we feel known, then we feel loved. And Paul is saying here that he's come to an awareness of this. But one, one day, <laughs> one day when we see Jesus, we're going to be fully known and therefore fully loved. The thing about it is, We are fully known right now by Jesus. He he knows us more deeply. But we have to grow into our understanding of that so that we can receive his love. 1 Corinthians 8, a few chapters before, says, the one who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the one who loves God is known by God. It's a beautiful gift that you can give to any other human being to help them feel known there, we make them feel loved, and this is, <clears throat> like we use the word know so so easily, don't we? We, we? we know something, we know it sort of superficially, we know the edges of it, but we don't, this is getting at something much deeper. And in each of the encounters of the post-resurrection encounters, we see a powerful intimacy comes through in the midst of this awesomeness of watching the one who has risen from the dead. But even though we're fully known, rather than that producing shame, because there's that part of us, doesn't it, that we all think, holy smoke, if I was fully known, I'm not sure I really love the idea of that, somebody really, really knowing everything about me. And yet somehow in these encounters, with well, that initial first feeling of apprehension, it very quickly moves to, to something else, much more deeper and beautiful, because somehow that shame is transformed into love and grace. And... Knowing everything about you, but the love being so strong that it kind of swallows that up. Tim Keller puts it like this To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. All of this is, comes together in the first resurrection account. And let me finish with 10 minutes talking about Mary. Mary's encounter with Jesus shows us this beautiful mixture of both reverence and intimacy. First of all, It's just absolutely brilliant that she is the first person that Jesus reveals himself to. Beautiful for a few reasons. Firstly, she's a woman. And uh, in those days, women were marginalized. And uh, men were privileged over women. (laughs) And the first person that gets to declare the great apostolic mission to the whole world is a woman. And not just a woman, but a broken woman. A woman that we don't know loads about, but we do know that she had seven demons that Jesus cast out. So we know that she was troubled. And Jesus chooses her to reveal himself to first and to carry the great gospel commission. Thirdly, she was the one that came to look after Jesus' body. Bringing spices, probably all part of the grieving process. And it says so much about who God is, doesn't it? The character of who God is revealed in Jesus that the most, in the most important act that's about to happen in history, the person that he chooses to reveal himself to is a broken, marginalized, grieving woman. Uh, we need to go back to John's account for this for a few moments. It says this, on the, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and the one Jesus loves, and she said, They've taken away my Lord, and we don't know where they've put him. First trying to enter the scene again. At this particular moment, Mary Magdalene is completely bereft of the man that's loved her, like no other man ever has. She uh, went to the tomb before most people were awake. I think she probably like to have got there on the, on the Saturday. Obviously, Jesus died on the Friday, but Saturday was the Sabbath, which meant that Jews couldn't see and touch dead bodies or be around that. So the earliest moment that she can get to the tomb, she gets to the tomb. Because even though Jesus is there and his body is dead, she wants to be near his body. Those of you who have lost people that you love know what that feels like. You know what it's like, that even when their body... It's that kind of weird thing that sometimes we don't, it doesn't really make sense unless you've lived it. Like, you know, we're going to bring the body home. Why when we know it's dead? Because something in the grieving process makes us want to be close to the one that we held, touched, loved, or whatever that might be. And Mary, I think, at this particular moment, she wants to be close to the body of Jesus to help her in her grief. And he's not there. So I think it's almost like Mary is initially, before she hears any news from the angel, is almost re-traumatized again because not only has Jesus died, but now they've taken away the body of the one that I loved. And so she runs and tells Peter, hear the grief in her tone, they've taken away my Lord. They've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've put him. They've taken him away. It's like, it's like proper desperation, it's grief. And Peter and John run to the tomb, they see Jesus is not there and they go back to the other disciples. And then John tells us this. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked their woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing. There. But she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. So Mary's standing here, pictures seen again, re-traumatized, overwhelmed by the absence absence of Jesus' body. She begins to weep. She looks into the tomb one more time. She sees two angels. Resurrection comes asking questions. Here's the questions. Why are you crying? What are you looking for? Feel those words to your own heart this morning. Why are you crying? What are you really looking for? What, what are you really looking for? At this point, Mary hears then this gentle, probing question that I've just said. Only this time it's not from the angels, it's from a different source whom she doesn't recognize. And Mary pleads, sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you've put him so I can get him, so I can hold that body one more time. And then the next line tells us this, Jesus said to her, Mary, that's all he said, Mary, Mary, Heather, Colette, Philip. Michael, Rachel, Johnny. Just set her name. Because nobody says your name like Jesus. And once she hears her name said, from the lips of the resurrected Jesus, she turns around in that moment. She knows who he is. And in her hopelessness, he says her name again, Mary. She hears the familiar cadence and tone of the one who'd loved her like nobody else had loved. And then it says, as she turned to him and she cried out and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is the perfect mix of reverence and intimacy. Rabbi is actually teacher. Rabboni is actually something like more, my dear teacher. So it's rabbi, teacher, like reverence. <gasps> but it's rabboni, my, my dear teacher, the, the one that I can call my own. Not just some distant teacher, but my rabbi. And now all she wants to do is hold him, Look she's obviously tried to grab him and then there's this quite unusual verse which we're not really that sure exactly what it means but Jesus said do not hold me for I have yet ascended to my I have not yet ascended to the father go and tell my brothers I am ascending to my father and your father isn't this beautiful to my God and to your God (laughs) Jesus is like you're part of the family and going back to my father and your father to so my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Everything changed that there for Mary. <clears throat> it was devastating to her that she had to deal with his death. Now she had to deal with his resurrection. And when that filled her with hope, it meant that she was going to be The first herald to the world that new creation was taking place and everything was going to change in the world and for eternity because Jesus was risen from the dead. N.T. Wright does this brilliant thing, I think, where he says that Mary mistook Jesus for the gardener and if ever there was a mistake to make, that was the right mistake. It was the right kind of mistake to mistake Jesus for the gardener. Because like Adam, who was the first man in a garden and didn't maybe do the best job long-term, Jesus is coming as a new Adam, as a gardener of this new creation to fill the world and all of eternity with his kingdom. The first Adam was a gardener who failed in his task and the world became a wasteland of war and sin. The second Adam will succeed in his task christ restoring the ruined garden but jesus had chosen mary <laughs> to tell everyone isn't that just the best thing like you know who would you have picked like who would who would we have picked who would the church have picked to go and hurl the good jesus picks mary and um and and as <clears throat> he revealed himself to her her life was changed because you see as I said last week at the baptism, Easter Sunday wasn't just a good day for the church. It's a good day for the world. It's a good day for all of humanity, and those early followers of Jesus who he appeared to believe this passionately. And once we get a grip of this, then the resurrection is not just an event that we look back to. The resurrection is something that we live into, and. Our hope is, as we encounter the resurrected Jesus afresh over the next few weeks, and as you pray about this in your own time and open up your heart to Jesus, our prayer is that we live the resurrection, that we, like those first women, run with resurrection in our bones. We run to tell others. That's what it's going to mean, because you you can't hold and contain that kind of a power. Well, you shouldn't be able to. And, and I know we all got bad days and, and we go through difficult times and all of that kind of stuff. But if the resurrection of Jesus doesn't awaken our hearts to want to run with it, tell others, then we need a fresh revelation of it. And um, I love this quote of, of Stanley Horace's as I finish off. He says this, those who follow Christ will be unable to explain the resurrection. The resurrection will explain them. You see, I, um, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to theology, if you haven't guessed, and so I like reading like big books that other people um, think are, are boring, and lots of it is, to be honest. Um, but there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of work that has been done to prove the resurrection. There's lots of historical data, lots of scientific data, lots of archaeological kind of searches. All of that kind of stuff happens. And the proof, to be fair, is relatively... It, it, it is relatively conclusive, although others will argue it's not. But the thing that you cannot argue with when it comes to, is the resurrection true or not? Is the effect that it had on the lives of those who followed him. The best apologetic for the resurrection is the early church. Is those who encountered the risen Jesus and radically changed their whole lives around to follow in his ways. To bring the message of new creation to every part of the every corner of the world as far as they could get in those days, and today we are part of that unfolding story of the person of Jesus resurrected, living in our lives, causing us to run with Him. And so, as I close this off this morning, I just I really feel like I'd love to pray for you. I'd love I'd love you to think as a as it draw this to a conclusion of the Lord Jesus, like he did with Mary, standing in front of you, asking you maybe a couple of questions. Why are you crying? And when he when he asks that question, it's 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 not like an intrusive thing, He's just he, he just wants to know. He wants you to tell him what hurts at the moment what hurts? Why are you crying? And then, what are you looking for? How are you trying to fix it? What places are you looking to try and have it fixed? Some of the ways that maybe you're trying maybe aren't that good. Some ways you're trying to fix it maybe are quite good. I mean, in the sense that they're not necessarily harmful. But maybe they're not Jesus. Maybe he's the one that you need to look to this morning. And maybe you need the reassurance and the reminder that as he stands before you, it's all going to be okay. (laughs) There's a prophetic word for you this morning. It's going to be okay. And that's not the limit and take away from how painful it is at the moment. And Jesus doesn't invalidate that either. And it might not feel necessarily okay, even this side of eternity, because we carry some of those scars. But it will be be okay if we've got hope and trust to believe it. And I just really feel as a prayer this morning, there's some of us who, particularly around the area of shame, um, We carry, like, this this phrase came to me just before church, like it's like a secret shame narrative that a lot of people maybe don't even know. And I think Mary, despite all that she'd known of Jesus delivering her (laughs) from seven demons and all the wholeness that she'd already experienced from Jesus in his life before his death, in in that moment, something about the guilt and shame that potentially still lingered within her was absolved and absorbed into the love of Christ because it all had been made new. you. And so I'd just love to pray for you this morning. So why don't we just um, cl- close our eyes this morning. If you're here this morning and um, in any way you just feel like the Lord is just speaking to you and there's something about just stepping in to the fresh revelation of the love of the resurrected Jesus. Just love to encourage you to stand. Um just love to pray for you and then I'm gonna ask everyone to stand in a moment. Thank you, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. You're worthy, Jesus. You're worthy. Hmm. Blessed be your name, God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're here, Lord. We're so we're so grateful you've risen from the dead, <laughs> oh Lord. Thank you that you've put a power and a joy in our hearts and in our lives to allow us to run, to run with resurrection. And God, I, I want to pray, Lord, today for uh, Lord each and every person here, but Lord, particularly for those who are just responding to you right now. I pray, that Holy Spirit you would open their eyes of their heart to see you, Jesus. And even in responding right now, God, it would disarm every false narrative of the enemy, every lie that has been spoken, every tactic of hell that has come against them to prevent them from walking more fully into their destiny. Every lingering little tactic of shame I come against right now in the name of Jesus. Break that power of those lies and that hold Lord, every uh, part of our being that maybe feels like it's carried loss when you want to heal that, uh, pray in the name of Jesus that you would come now and demonstrate your power, the power of your love to heal our hearts, to heal our minds, and to heal our bodies and to free us and release us into all that you have for us. So come now, Holy Spirit, come in and through the power of your Holy Spirit to bring freedom and release. Lord, I pray that your hand would continue on each of these lives throughout this day and in the days ahead. Maybe we could all stand for a moment. Just love to pray over us all as we close. Um, um, God, I just pray that you would place within us a fresh fascination, a fresh fascination with who you are, I pray that you would move us from what is familiar. Shake off familiarity to awaken our hearts afresh. The fascination of who you are, Jesus. Awaken our hearts in this season, we pray, Lord. I'd love us to do something a bit unusual. Catherine had said she had a song at the end, and I'm going to ask us if we could just sing it a cappella, if that's all right because it's one that you should all know and it's uh, he is lord he is lord he is risen from the dead and he is lord can we do that together he is lord he is lord he is risen from time. He is Lord